Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian Rugby Union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian Rugby Union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrett, and welcome to episode 25. Today's episode is one that I've wanted to tackle for a while now during this journey of discovery and introspection and investigation into Australian rugby. As some of you may know, or have picked up along the way, I grew up in Western Australia, and it was there that I discovered my love of the game, but of course, not without the infatuation of Aussie rules and a few other sports. The West Coast Eagles were, and and still are, my first love, and I was a pretty mad Perth Wildcats fan back in the days of James the Alabama Slammer Crawford and Andrew Vlahoff. And of course, like most kids, cricket captured my imagination, especially in WA, where you could go down to the Wacker and watch legends like Tom Moody, Damian Martin, Justin Langer, Joe Angel, and when he moved across from New South Wales, Adam Gilchrist. But rugby sucked me into its web, and as I've said in past episodes, this was down to the lure of the Wallabies and that magical era many of us were fortunate enough to live through. So in 2005, like many West Australian rugby folk, I was thrilled to bits when the Australian Rugby Union announced that a fourth Super Rugby franchise would be created in Australia, and that Perth would be the next destination for this historic new club. The Western Force was born, and as someone who had played for the state as a junior, I had bittersweet feelings about it. I was happy for the people of WA, happy for what it would mean for the future of rugby in the state, but if I'm being honest, I was disappointed it hadn't happened a few years earlier. I'd been fortunate enough to represent WA as a junior on two occasions in the days before there were academies. And by 2005, I'd already moved to Sydney to play club rugby. So in a way, I felt like I was that last generation of juniors to come through WA and miss the early opportunities for the professional pathway. However, my journey would take me elsewhere. And for the Western Force, well, that's a journey I want to get into today. Rugby Union was first played in Western Australia in the 19th century, with the Union founded in 1893. Of course, it has always been second fiddle to the behemoth that is Aussie rules, which is practically as much of a religion in the state of Western Australia as it is in Victoria. However, with a strong expat community in Perth and around the state, it's always helped Union remain a prominent fixture. Early on into my process of making this documentary, I returned to Perth and took the opportunity to try and speak to people involved in the game there. One of the most well-known and well-respected rugby personalities in Western Australia you'll ever come across is Jeff Stook. Jeff is an army veteran, a business leader of industries, and has a rugby CV that spans 50 years across just about every level and aspect of rugby in Australia. Most significantly, he was on the board of the Western Force until 2011, before taking a role as a director on the board of the ARU. And as it happens, 
Jeff played representative rugby for WA in the 1970s with my old man. He continued to play for his local club associates throughout his later years and, and only hung up the boots as recently as 2019 at the young age of 71. This is me meeting Jeff down at the Western Force headquarters in Floriot in early 2020. Well, I started playing grade rugby in 1965 in Sydney and I finished playing grade rugby a couple of months ago here in Perth. So, uh, 55 seasons. Um, I played all around Australia with uh, the military and uh, overseas and I came here in 1975 and um, played first grade here through to 1990, third grade till 2005 and from 2006 until this year played fourth grade. Um, I represented the state from 75 through to 83 and uh, also managed to uh, uh, coached the state schoolboys, the state under-21s and the state senior team at different times. And um, in 1988 I became chairman of uh, Rugby WA and I was in that role until 2011. Outside of the powerhouse rugby states of New South Wales and Queensland, Western Australia has the next largest number of registered players. It fields a strong metropolitan competition that has had over the last two decades anywhere between eight to 13 clubs competing in the Premier Division. And then it fields a smaller second division, as well as limited regional competitions. The big men are back at the Wacker this Friday night. Back for the big game rugby league when our Western Reds take on the Sydney Roosters. Back at the Wacker, under lights to do battle in a head-to-head -head clash. Show your support for the Reds this Friday and you could also win one of 200 double passes to Roadshow's new movie, Judge Dredd. WA got a taste of being involved in a regular national rugby competition back in the 1990s when a rugby league team called the Western Reds played in the then ARL for five years. I actually remember that first game down at the famous Wacker Ground in the centre of the city as the Western Reds with famous league players such as Mark Guyer, Matt Fuller and Julian O'Neill had their inaugural match against the St George Dragons. The Western Reds definitely struck a chord in a city that both had rugby people amongst it and as the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle Dockers illustrated, it was a local club that could allow the state to throw down against those wise men from the east. However, the Western Reds wouldn't last long, becoming a casualty of the ensuing Super League War. And while the Western Reds were an interesting sideshow in Perth, Rugby Union had always been the more popular of the two codes, largely due to the sizeable contingent of expats living in Perth from the United Kingdom, Ireland, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands, and of course, a sizeable amount of people who had emigrated from South Africa and Zimbabwe. There's been an enormous growth in the game um, and I've got to say as much as uh, some people like to criticise the, the cornerstone of uh, rugby for a long time in Western Australia were the Kiwis who uh, came to the state and uh, during my time in the state team I was one of the few uh, non-Kiwi guys playing in the state team. Um, but certainly um, it um, has grown through the schools, it's grown through the juniors, the numbers are far greater. Each time there was a major event in Australian rugby, good event in Australian rugby, um, the numbers increased. For instance, when we won the World Cup in 91, there was a spike. And when we won the World Cup in 99, there was a significant spike. With rugby on the up in Australia at the turn of the millennium, 
was clear that Rugby Union saw an opportunity to expand its national footprint. At the height of the Wallabies' popularity and on-field success in the late 1990s, Perth had successfully hosted sold-out matches against the Springboks and shown a sizeable following for games against Ireland and New Zealand Maori. John O'Neill was CEO of the ARU during that time that Perth has been included as a destination for Wallaby matches. In my absence from the game, the Western Force joined and I was very supportive of that. And, and when people say, you know, why were you supportive of, of expansion? Uh, again, it's a bit of a history lesson, you know, when the Sanzar deal was done, um, without any particular science, you know, there was, you know, five teams, five teams out of New Zealand, three, four teams out of Africa and three teams from Australia. And the ARU struggled to get the Brumbies in. I mean, there was huge opposition from South Africa and New Zealand to three teams. Turns out the Brumbies came in and were a big success story. But what a lot of people didn't realise is in terms of our share of the pie, we were getting 21% of the revenue. And my argument was, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how many teams you've got, it's about the value of your footprint. While finding people to talk to from WA Rugby, I was also introduced to Tony Howarth, who was on the board of Rugby WA for eight years and then later became CEO of the Western Force. Tony is originally from New South Wales and had worked at the State Bank of New South Wales with none other than John O'Neill back in the day. After Tony moved to Western Australia with his family, he joined the Cottesloe Rugby Club, which for anyone listening from outside WA, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but it is a club that could lay claim to having one of the nicest views of any rugby ground in Australia if not the world. Go on Google and check it out. This is Tony. Um, when we came here, our boys were 11 and 8, um, and we were looking to get them involved in, in sport. Um, and being rugby folk, uh, we were quickly rounded up by the local rugby club, which was Cottesloe, uh, and my boys started playing, our boys started playing in Cottesloe. Um, they, uh, that was sort of a family experience as well, and I ultimately got a little bit more involved in the, in the administration of the club and became the president of Coslow Rugby Club for a few years. I then got uh, asked to be part of the bid process for the, for the Western Force. Um, and I think, uh, you know, have, being in the bank, being quite involved in the community here in Western Australia, it was, uh, we felt it was a really good thing, thing to do. And, you know, it had opened up some pathways for our for kids and for rugby people here in Western Australia. Uh, and there was a really vibrant rugby community here in Western Australia, and still is really. Tony Howarth and Jeff Stook were both on the ground level when the Western Force were bidding for that lucrative fourth franchise. Well, it got reduced down to two, ourselves in the Victorian Rugby Union. And uh, I'm led to believe it was a bit of a one horse race in the end. Uh, we had tremendous government support. Uh, we also were able to secure significant sponsor support and uh, that in itself was a significant difference I think between us and um, the Victorian bid. Um, we arranged for our sports minister at his request to come and join us when we presented to the Australian Rugby Board our submission. Um, when Victorian heard about it, they got their sports minister to come up but uh, 
being a former AFL player, he wasn't passionate about the game, whereas our sports minister was a Welshman who was somewhat passionate. But uh, certainly, I think uh, we won it pretty convincingly um, and uh, it became very successful. I was living and playing rugby in Sydney when the Western Force had their historic start in Super Rugby in 2006. I recall watching on TV that first historic game played out at Subiaco Oval, a large AFL stadium that had for many years been the cauldron for the West Coast Eagles and Fremantle Dockers. That day, on the 10th of February, 2006, Subiaco was practically filled to capacity to watch the Western Force play the ACT Brumbies. In the boardroom, where I conducted my interview with Jeff Stook, there was a massive blown up picture of that day. Where were you seated again? Well, over here we had a, uh, a suite there that uh, we entertained our sponsors and uh, government officials and uh, people from the AAU. Yeah. We used to entertain them in those days. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and, and obviously, you know, it was an AFL oval, but, you know, at that point for that night, it didn't really matter. There were so many people. Well, people didn't worry about the fact it was configured for AFL and uh, they're a bit far you know, from the, uh, the action. They're more than happy just to come along and see their own team uh, performing uh, in Perth. Yeah. And uh, we had 35,000 there, which was uh, a great crowd. And, uh, and the team performed pretty well against uh, the Brumbies. So... Uh, no, it was a, a great night, great day, and uh, everyone had a wonderful time. The Western Force lost that match, 25-10, to 10, and would go on to finish in last place at the end of that first season. Considering how competitive a competition Super Rugby was, it was no surprise. However, with a playing squad that included Wallaby Stalwarts, Nathan Sharp, Matt Gittow, Brendan Cannon, and emerging talents like David Pocock, Drew Mitchell and James O'Connor, there were high hopes for the force to make a splash over the coming years, just like the ACT Brumbies had done 10 years earlier. I should also mention that the government support when we first started here was very, very good. Um, we didn't have any cash to sort of uh, fund that, uh, or any revenue, sorry, to fund that first year while we were building the team up, but we still had expenses. So we employed a coach and all the marketing managers and, and we started bringing players on board. So um, the costs over that first year were about $2 million. The government gave us an interest-free loan to cover those expenses, which we repaid in under three years. So the government here was very supportive. So, so the financial outlook for the force from the beginning was pretty positive. Did that change over sort of time and, <clears throat> and if so? It did why? change. It changed for a number of reasons. Um, one was lack of on-field success, which is, well, doesn't matter what team it is, it could be the Eagles or the Dockers, if you're not winning, people stop coming. So that was a, a major issue for us. Uh, the second one was uh, Subaco Oval. It's an AFL, or was an AFL stadium and the viewing experience wasn't fantastic. Now, in the early days, people couldn't care as long as we had a, uh, a super team. But as time went by, some people preferred to sit at home and watch it on television because it was shown direct. There was no delayed telecast, so it was shown direct, and they could sit at home and watch it rather than uh, go to Subaco Oval. Winning wasn't just hard for the Western Force. It had started to become hard for all the Australian teams after the competitiveness of the first 10 years of Super Rugby. After the Brumbies had won their second Super Rugby title in 2004, 
took another seven years for an Australian team to win it. This time, it was the Queensland Reds, who managed to beat the mighty Crusaders at a home final in Brisbane. However, by this time in 2011, five seasons after they had begun, the Western Force had been unable to finish higher than seventh out of 14 on the Super Rugby ladder. With the lack of on-field success that continued and the, uh, the facility itself, uh, numbers fell away. And once numbers fell away, so did the profits. Uh, we still enjoyed some uh, success with uh, our sponsors, but we did uh, lose our major sponsor, which is most unfortunate, and uh, I won't go into the details there. But um, What Jeff is referring to, of course, is the Firepower saga. One of the force's early major sponsors was Firepower International, a headline-grabbing company that purported to reduce fuel consumption in petrol vehicles through the use of its unique Firepower Pill product. It was a company that perfectly embodied the WA boom of the mid-2000s, explosive, exciting, and brimming with potential and the promise of riches. It was headed by a businessman called Tim Johnston, and at the height of the company's rise, it sponsored some Australian sporting teams, like the South Sydney Rabbitohs, the Sydney Kings, and of course, the Western Force. However, doubts about the company's magic pill product started to emerge, and claims made by Johnston were seen to be demonstrably false. The founder of the discredited fuel pill technology company Firepower has been banned from managing companies for 20 years. ASIC brought the case against former Firepower chairman Timothy Johnston, jo Johnston after the company collapsed in 2008, leaving investors more than $100 million out of pocket. In Perth today, Justice John Gilmore said Mr Johnston should be excluded for a very long period of time from having access or control over shareholders' investments. By 2007, the company was defunct. Johnston, who had fled Australia and was later tracked down in London, was barred by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission from holding office in any Australian company for 20 years. And for teams like the Western Force, it meant money promised to the club would not be forthcoming. By 2011, lost third-party income was a major distraction for the club and it contributed to it losing its main playmaker and wallaby, Matt Gittow, as well as a group of other senior players. And in 2011, another challenge for the force to hold on to player talent emerged. Yeah, what a moment for Sterling Mortlock to lead the Melbourne Rebels onto Amy Park in their first official match. What a night for Victoria Rugby and the fans. This is what John O'Neill, who by 2011 had returned as CEO of the ARU, had to say about the emergence of the Rebels. In my, my, my second coming, if you like, it was very much about getting us to a third, a third, a third. And that would be helped if we had the same number of teams. Um, and people said, yeah, but you know, it was a mistake to expand. Well, people weren't saying that at the time. And, and why would it be a mistake to actually have a, a team in Perth and a team in Melbourne, Canberra, Sydney and Brisbane, which gave you, because there was a lot of talk about a national competition I'd change the, the conversation to say, no, we've got, to, we've got to aspire to a national footprint. And we had an advantage in Perth because of the population mix of, of South Africans and, and, and Poms, etc. And, and no rugby league. You know, yes, AFL, the gorilla in the room, but, you know. And then in Melbourne, um, 
we could slip nicely into Melbourne. Uh, we have, they, they had one rugby league team and, yeah, eight or something AFL teams, but it's sporting capital of the world. But it was also to create more capacity for professional players. So instead of the Wallaby coach looking at, say, 120 players to choose from, he could be looking at 200. Um, so there was a, a player pathway and, and coach pathway development side to expansion, which also related to the, you know, the, a bigger slice of the, of the cake. Given the Queensland Reds had just won the Super Rugby title in 2011, it's fair to say that the mood in Australian rugby circles would have been optimistic about having another team to try and build depth and bring Australia level with New Zealand and South Africa in terms of the number of teams in Super Rugby. After all, despite not winning the Rugby World Cup later that year, the Wallabies still managed to progress to a semi-final, losing to the hosts and eventual winners, the All Blacks. It wasn't a bad showing. Yet a quick look at the overall performance of the four Australian Super Rugby teams since 2006 plainly shows that there was hardly improvement across the board at either Super Rugby or Wallaby level in comparison to the time period of 1996 to 2005 when there were only three teams. It was in 2012 that Jeff Stook became a director on the board of the ARU. Given at that point in time, uh, Australian rugby hadn't had much success generally in Super Rugby. The Wallabies were sort of up and down. Was there talk? Do, do you know, or do you have an opinion on whether there was consideration around the issue of introducing a fifth team and and any detrimental effect it might it might have on expanding the player base? Or? Well, during the early period, I think the Brumbies won a title, so it wasn't. And uh, in, the, the, uh, in two thousand and eleven, I think it was. Um, the Reds won a title, so there was some success. But certainly, um, I wasn't on the board at the time. Um, I felt there was going to be a problem with um, Victoria because of the competition they had for sponsorship dollars. And uh, that was always the concern I had, that the financially, how would they go? Um, I don't know. Um, their, their playing population was a lot less than Western Australia, and we certainly struggled here. So. I knew it would be tougher for them. Our playing numbers far exceeded theirs. Do you, I mean, look, do you think even now or at any point has Australian rugby had enough super rugby quality players to fill three, four, even five franchises? Um, there's enough players. Um, it's a case of where they play. And as you know, there's over 100 uh, players of that standard playing overseas. Look, going back into the early end of the, the forces journey, there was some decent talent in those early years when you're looking at the likes of um, some of the players that came from Queensland and a mm. very young David Pocock and, mm. you know, you know, look, not sort of really sort of looking at it too closely, but do you, do you think any reasons or any sort of general reasons as to why perhaps the force didn't have as much success as it did in those earlier years? Well, we had uh, talent, but we had um, probably two-thirds of a good team, of a team that's going to win a lot more than they lose. Uh, we got close to the finals one year. And yes, we had some quality players, but we'd lose one and get another. This is Tony Howarth. Because the thing that we really struggled with was getting, was getting quality players and keeping quality players. Uh, and you saw the likes of, you know, Gitto 
spent a lot of his rugby here, uh, so did Pocock. Um, but the minute they start to get into the Australian squad, they just felt it was in their interest to be over East. So it was very hard for us to actually keep the quality of players we needed uh, to be a competitive side. There is a point here on recruiting players between Australian franchises that I should address. And I brought this up in an earlier podcast, episode 18, The Golden Geese. In that episode, I examined the Queensland Reds and ACT Brumbies and their influence on successful Wallaby performances. When the Western Force came into existence in 2006, the franchise needed to try and hit the ground running. And in doing so, it recruited from existing Australian rugby systems to give the team the best chance of being competitive. Unlike the ACT Brumbies, which had a strong local outfit called the Kookaburras and featured names like George Gregan, Stephen Larkham, Rod Kafer, and Joe Roth, WA didn't have any such team of that calibre. The state team at the time, known as the Perth Gold, which people like Jeff Stook and my father had played for back in the day, was a representative team, but it lacked regular seasons and had only been competing in a newly formed competition launched by the ARU in 2000 called the Australian Rugby Shield. The Rugby Shield pitted the Perth Gold against other non-traditional rugby states, as well as New South Wales country and Queensland country. And while the Gold did win the competition twice, including in 2005, the year before the force commenced, the gulf in level between teams in the Australian Rugby Shield and the top Eastern States club teams was still very noticeable. Unsurprisingly, when the ACT Brumbies feeder team, the Canberra Vikings, were kicked out of the New South Wales Shoot Shield in 2005, they entered the Australian Rugby Shield in 2006 and won the competition in their first season. So for WA Rugby, without a strong representative team that had been playing full seasons against strong competition, it needed to resort to wholesale recruitment of talent in a short space of time. And who were these players the force recruited? They were Nathan Sharp, Junior Palasosa, Drew Mitchell, Rudy Vedalago, Scott Deruda, Luke Doherty, Pat O'Connor, and several more names from the Queensland Reds squad, including some of their academy players, such as two promising teenagers called Digby Ioni and David Pocock. In short, by 2007, the force had recruited, or poached as some may say, 12 contracted Reds players. It's no wonder the Reds then spent the first three seasons of the force's tenure towards the bottom of the table. There's another complication that played out for the force in those early days. This is Jeff again. There was also, in terms of how we balance our teams out, there was a major uh, difference between the um, funding provided to um, the Eastern States teams compared to the Western Force and the Rebels. And that was built around what they call Wallaby top-ups. So when you have um, Wallabies in your team, they get paid to play Super Rugby. And then if they're one of the uh, players that the ARU determines they want for the Wallabies, they can pay them an extra amount. Now, to give you an example, at one point in time, the uh, Waratahs had $2 million in top-up money for their players. The uh, Western Force had 200000 and the Rebels had about 600000 
So you can see right from there that they, on paper, had the better quality players. There was no attempt to equalise the talent, none whatsoever. Um, as you would have known, the AFL has done that. They've had a market equalisation. And certainly um, it didn't happen in rugby. And uh, there was no special conditions provided to um, the Western Force or the Rebels compared to the more established teams in the heartland states. So uh, it was always a tough gig for both the Force and uh, the Rebels. So while the team was struggling and there was this constant pressure to retain top players, many of whom had made the big move to settle and play in Perth, rugby was undeniably growing in Western Australia and the impact this had on the rugby community was still significant. The fact that a professional team was based in the San Gropa State with a pathway to professionalism for promising juniors, meant that young players like me no longer had to move to the eastern states to try and climb the ladder. When I think on this topic, I do sometimes wonder that if the Western Force had been in existence a few years earlier, whether I would have even made that move to New South Wales to try and crack it in Sydney grade rugby. Well, one of, one of the things we tried to do early was to set up a, a camaraderie group like... Um, what they had at the Crusaders in, uh, in, in, in New Zealand. Um, and that was to really provide an opportunity for, for, for business people to come together to, to support Australian rugby. Um, we set up a foundation and that foundation was about trying to develop young rugby players through uh, the system is called. It's now called the Force Foundation. It still it still runs and it still looks to identify uh, young talent, junior talent, put them in a um, put them in a development squad and take them through to elite rugby. And it's been it's been very successful. And you saw lots of um, lots of young players come through that pathway in in recent years. Looking back, despite the positives that a pathway has been created in Western Australia there are only three homegrown WA Wallabies that have been produced since the force came into existence. Dane Hale at Petty and Kyle Goldwyn and, in what has been an inspiring story for 2021, Ollie Hoskins, the tight head prop who was recruited into the UK touring squad at the 11th hour. You could argue Scott Higginbotham, who was born in Perth, but he did all his senior schooling in Brisbane and made his mark through the Queensland system. So while these homegrown players prove that the pathway has worked, it is fair to ask whether the pathway has actually been working any more effectively than the professional period prior when the only other WA-born and bred Wallabies were John Wellborn and Brett Sheehan, who simply moved across to the east. Two homegrown Wallabies prior to the force and three after the force was started. It's something that really does get back to what Australian rugby has had to grapple with for time immemorial, and that is, how does an international sport like rugby union position itself when it is the third, perhaps even fourth, most popular winter sport? This is former Wallaby and ACT Brumby Rod Kafer, who we've heard from in an earlier episode. He had this to say about the challenge rugby union faces with the prominence of the other sporting codes. We see it very distinctly at the, at the moment. We will say quite rightly, where are all the great ball playing nines and tens, tens and twelves? We, we can't find them in Australian rugby. We're struggling for fly halves. We're struggling for inside centres. And the reason why is because 
if you're a young kid at the age of 13, 14, 15, 16, and you're a good ball-playing rugby union player, well, you're most likely playing rugby league as well on the weekend. The highest-paid players in rugby league are ball-playing halfbacks, hook, halfback hooker, or, you know, six, seven, and nine, and, and maybe your fullback as well as your highest-paid players. Now, all of those guys are what we would describe as nine, tens, twelves, and fifteens in rugby. Um, so... So the big money that rugby league can pay goes to ball-playing players. Now, if we look at AFL, the, the big money in AFL may also be for similar sort of athletic, um, you know, big running, big numbers sort of guys who can play on the ball in AFL, which again is not dissimilar to a AFL halfback or a rugby union halfback or, or a, sorry, NRL halfback or a, or a rugby union halfback is the similar type of somatotype. So we're seeing the potential great athletes who could play either, either any sport, three or four different sports, they end up going um, to other sports or get attracted to other sports earlier than what they have traditionally been attracted to rugby. What I find relevant in what Rod says as it pertains to Western Australia is that the game continues to struggle in tapping into the talent of non-rugby union areas and attempting to lure those potential Aussie rules, ruck rovers and centre players to become critical playmaking footballers the game of rugby desperately needs. And while the ingrained culture of Australian rules football and rugby league in the eastern states remains, along with the financial pull those codes have at the youth level, Rugby's attempts to have Aussie rules and league fanatics switch allegiance remains an uphill battle. And for me, this point is illustrated in two out of those three wallabies that WA have produced in the last two decades, in Dane Hale at Petty and Kyle Godwin. Two players who were both born in South Africa and Zimbabwe, respectively. Countries that have a singular focus on rugby union without distractions from other contact football codes. They are, by and large, people who were born into families with an understanding and love of rugby union, as opposed to kids from strong AFL backgrounds that have been converted. A 19-year wait is over. It's third time lucky. Denied in 05, denied in 08 by the Crusaders. But victorious in 2014, the New South Wales Waratahs have got the monkey off their back. A record crowd for a Super Rugby final, 61,823 at ANZ Stadium in Sydney. In 2014, Australia had its fourth Super Rugby title in 19 seasons. This time, it was the Waratahs who had been starved of the silverware for a long time. Quite remarkable, considering New South Wales is the largest state in Australia and has the largest number of rugby players to choose from. I was in Sydney that night and I went to that famous title win over the Crusaders. It was an electric atmosphere. And when you look at the crowds that attend Waratahs matches in recent years, that night feels like an age ago. That 2014 Waratahs win set up what seemed like a promising run for the Wallabies. Many in that Tars team would feature in the starting 23 at the World Cup the following year in England, headed up by their same coach, Michael Checker. 
and despite getting pipped by the All Blacks at the final, it seemed that perhaps 2015 was when Australia had started to climb back up out of its slump and was on the verge of a new beginning. And indeed, it felt like the times were changing with Super Rugby due to expand from 15 to 18 teams for the upcoming 2016 season. Now, the competition had a sixth South African team and one team each from the new rugby up-and-comers in Japan and the long-time Tier 1 contender Argentina. While it was seemingly exotic and intriguing, what was already a difficult competition for Australian fans to follow across three countries and multiple time zones just got harder. As we bought into a financial dream that a lot of people did, which was if you just make more and more and more rugby, you'll just find more and more and more dollars. And for example, that's what happened to Super Rugby. And we've ended up in a situation where we're generating matches for who? Like, you know, who's watching it and why? And it stretched it past um, sort of breaking point. This is Matt Rowley, the founder of Australia's most popular rugby fan website, Green and Gold Rugby. As far as how you get people to buy in emotionally, it probably talks a little bit... Look, I, I know one answer, which is that when you end up watching your team play uh, a Japanese team in Singapore um, on TV, you probably know that you're getting away from something that's going to create that sort of you know, uh, reaction you're looking for. And when you can't go and watch you know, your uh, super rugby team play on consecutive weekends or even other weekends, but you're going to have to wait three or four weeks until the next back in town. So you can't bank on it being a regular thing that you take your kids or your mates to. Then that's the further you get away from it. And that's where we've been for a number of years now. I've got those memories of years ago where it felt like, you know, every other weekend you just filed down to the SFS because the Tars were going to be playing somebody, right? And now it feels like you're lucky if you see them sort of like once every six weeks. And then you've got Who's the team they're playing against again? And Super Rugby's expansion was exactly what it was all about. A financial dream to create more rugby and generate more revenue. However, as we heard from John O'Neill, the last expansion to 15 teams in 2011 put Australia on an equal footing with South Africa and New Zealand with five teams apiece and allowed the ARU to get an equal share of the Sansa broadcast deal with Rupert Murdoch. With regards to the 2016 expansion, O'Neill had this to say. If I you know, cut to the chase around you know, what I believe were really serious errors of judgment was that the ARU as a member of Sansar, you know, because the, the last broadcast deal I did, we bought in Melbourne, we created the conference system, 555. The massive beneficiary of that was rugby in Australia. We went to local derbies, eight home games per franchise, and those local derbies really rated. And in 2011, okay, the Reds won the Super Rugby and the Wallabies looked like you know, warm favourites for the World Cup and we, we didn't win. You know, go back and ask Foxtel, not Fox Sports, but Foxtel, seven of the 10 highest rating programs ever on Foxtel in 2011, seven were rugby games. So in 2011, you know, with five teams, you know, you know, spreading the Vegemite too thinly, we had, you know, in terms of viewership, the best, best year since 2003. And, but then the fatal mistake 
came later, when Sansa, in its stupidity, added an extra team from South Africa, a Japanese team and an Argentinian team, and went to 18 teams. I mean, and it, South Africa's issues, because they'd been after a six team forever because they've got this, the Eastern Cape um, political issue. But behind closed doors, the South Africans would say to me, just say no, because then we can go back to the government and, and blame Sansa. Or we would say, no, you can have five teams. How you make up the five, whether you drop the lines and, and, and bring in the kings, you, that's up to you. But you've got five teams. Instead, in putting Argentina in, fair income, the travel and accommodation costs of Super Rugby are a killer. And the time zones are killer. And what do you do? You add Argentina. I mean, J Japan, I'll come to Japan in a moment. The, the, the body bag out of that error of judgment was the Western Force. By the time the 18-team Super Rugby expansion was in flight, the Western Force was just hanging on in terms of finance. However, they weren't the only club struggling financially, according to Jeff Stook, who was at this point a director on the board of the ARU. Uh, they were all struggling. Um, a number had had uh, been lent funds previously by the ARU, and uh, Queensland, for instance, uh, struggled at one stage, and they had a, quite a substantial loan. And the ARU put in place a joint committee of ARU and uh, Queensland or Reds representatives to manage the affairs or oversee the affairs of the union until they pay back their debt. Um, Victoria was quite different. Uh, when the rebels uh, lost so much money and then uh, Harold Mitchell handed back the licence, um, the ARU picked up the tab all the way through. Um, New South Wales, many years before, had also had a financial problem where they were loan, loaned funds and uh, they paid them back. In 2016, when the Western Force needed money from the ARU, it was the first time in the club's short history. And the president was there, with the ARU having had to help bail out both the New South Wales Waratahs and the Queensland Reds, as well as put considerable amounts of money into the Melbourne Rebels just to keep them afloat. The force requested $800,000 from the ARU. However, the ARU proposed an alternative arrangement. There was a funding shortfall and they were assisted through that. And part of that was to agree to this alliance arrangement, which effectively handed over the assets of Rugby WA and the Western Force to the ARU. So I wasn't chairman then. I was on the other side of the fence. They were seen to be assisting them. The alliance was always seen to be a vehicle to uh, ensure the ARU had a level of control over uh, what was happening here, given there was a uh, issue with um, their finances. Um, however, it was a very different arrangement to what had been put in place for a number of years with the rebels. Totally different. So uh, a different regime in place by the time too. Uh, Bill Poole would become the, uh, the Chief Executive Officer. The question that still remains to this day is what was the true intent of the Alliance Agreement? Two months prior to the agreement being confirmed, the ARU had had consultants from Accenture 
compile a report that amongst several recommendations did float the idea of culling a super rugby team. There was apparently a report that Rugby Australia received recommending that a super rugby team be, be culled. Um, did you ever read that report or hear about that? What was the general uh, attitude in response to that, that report? Well, um, I didn't agree with it because I've always been of the view that we should continue to work towards a national footprint and that I believe the five teams should have remained. Um, I often look at AFL and they've had a number of teams that have uh, struggled. Um, certainly the Gold Coast team struggles, but they continue to fund it. The money put into Greater Western Sydney is enormous. They also have draft uh, preferences and all these sorts of things, so they're given a real leg up. Uh, Australian rugby chose not to do that uh, for a number of reasons. I think uh, uh, one is they probably didn't have the money. Well, they didn't at one stage, certainly. The other thing is that um, the various states were quite happy for the Western Force and I think probably the Rebels to come on board as long as you're not successful. <laughs> Very happy to have us come along, but uh, don't, win, don't beat us and don't win any more games than us. So that's, there's a seriously a, a, um, uh, an attitude with uh, the various teams that uh, look after ourselves and we get the rest. So there's certainly not a national approach from the super teams themselves. It's 2017 and Australian rugby has gone massively backwards less than two years after that close triumph at the World Cup in 2015. After the glory of sending England out in the pool stages of their own World Cup, the English got their revenge nine months later by whitewashing the Wallabies in a home series 3-0, the first ever series win by the English on Australian soil. Australia then continued its losing streak against the All Blacks, and in Super Rugby, all five Australian teams would be halfway through a record total losing streak to the five New Zealand teams that had started in the 2016 season. Then, on the morning of the 11th of April, 2017, the AIU chairman, Cameron Klein, was accompanied by CEO Bill Pulver at a press conference at AIU headquarters in Sydney. Uh, today I confirm that the AIU board has made the decision to remove one Australian team from the Super Rugby competition from 2018. As announced by Sanzar last night, Super Rugby will revert to a 15-team format from next season with one team from Australia and two teams from South Africa to be removed from the current 18-team competition. From 2018, the Australian Super Rugby Conference will feature four teams from Australia and the Sunwolves from Japan. As shocking as it was, the rumours had been rife for months that Sanzar was considering a cull of teams from the competition. And while an Australian team was rumoured to be a victim in this cull, the big reveal was that it wasn't a Sanzar decision to cut an Australian team. It's important for me to clarify firstly the decision to remove a super rugby team from Australia was a decision made by the ARU, not by Sanzar. This outcome, however, was only made possible by a consensus vote by the four Sanzar partners and has been a complex process involving many stakeholders in the competition across the globe. This process was finally completed yesterday. It's fair to say the fallout was pretty immediate. News outlets jumped onto this new sporting scandal and all of a sudden, Rugby Union was front page news for the wrong reasons. Battle lines were drawn up and everyone was in the firing line. None more so 
than those at the ARU, such as Chairman Cameron Klein, who did choose to face the press and was grilled by Radio Shock Jock and the Wallabies' second most successful coach on record, Alan Jones. The point I'm making, Alan, is that we've put a lot of money into these five teams. These teams aren't run by the Australian Rugby Union. They're so you're worried about states. You're worried about money. Well, that pays the game. Well, but, well hang but, on. No, it doesn't pay for the game. What pays for the game is quality rugby. And you have constantly told us all that you were going to ignite Australia's passion. I'm putting to you that the people on the board of Australian rugby aren't qualified to do that job. I think, quite frankly, most of you know bugger all about the game and how to get results. You'll get If you get people through the turnstiles, you'll make money. You said you'd ignite Australia's passion for the game, and I'm reading these words, build sustainable success in the professional era. Well, since 2003, you've not won a Bledisloe Cup. Since 2003, you've not beaten the British Lions. Since 2003, you haven't won a World Cup. Since 2003, you haven't won an under-20 World Championship. We've won eight out of 31 games in Super Rugby, none out of 12 against New Zealand. Now, your product is flawed. That's why you can't pay your way. What are you doing about it? You're presiding over this. Don't you say, you come from a commercial world, don't you say, well, if that's what everything we've done, if that's what the end result is, we've failed, we'd better give it to someone who can succeed. I went through the ARU annual reports since 2007. Now, all you rugby followers, get your head around this. This crowd have spent $777 million. What have we got to show for it? The actions taken didn't just have an impact on the public, but stirred action from the nation's capital and parliament. The Australian Senate would eventually decide to hold an inquiry entitled The Future of Rugby and was headed up by the West Australian MP, Linda Reynolds. On the Hansard record, could I please ask you for your full name and the capacity in which you appear? Yes, Cameron Klein, Chairman of the Australian Rugby Union. Welcome, thank you. Now, I know that you've been... The inquiry became the forum for all the aspects of the Super Rugby Axing saga to be made public such as the state of the game's finances. This is CEO Bill Pulver. Senators, the Australian Rugby Union has a history of running as a loss-making enterprise. While the Wallabies run at a healthy profit each year, the fact is that Super Rugby is the most financially challenged part of the AOU's operations and the declining revenue trends in Super Rugby are accelerating. To put that statement in context, the AOU has incurred $28 million of unbudgeted costs in the last five years in supporting and bailing out super rugby teams. Throughout my research, this has always been a sentence that has stuck with me. The Australian Rugby Union has a history of running as a loss-making enterprise. I've always been intrigued as to how a sport that has a pedigree within the private school system has participation by many educated and business-minded people and at the top professional level in Australia, has been administered by leaders of finance and banking sectors. How despite all that, the union has still managed to run at a loss, and in recent years, boarded on being insolvent. It makes you wonder about the approach the board has taken year after year, in which the game has been allowed to exist in what can only be described as a dysfunctional fiscal manner. Clearly, one of the issues with the business of rugby in Australia is the structure upon which the code is administered, something Cameron Klein raised when he appeared in the Senate inquiry. Now, Mr Pulver in his testimony said that over the last, I think, seven or so years, there's been 13 reviews 
uh, that have been done on the sport and gone to the board. That's a lot of reviews. Um, what's the reason? Is it internal management and governance or is it more the financial strains or a bit of both they've looked at? It, look, it's a combination of both. And I mean, when obviously some of those reviews are internal reviews, they're not all you know, substantial yeah. external reviews. One of the complexities of running our game is you run under a federated structure. That's a very complex way to run a game. It's not the ideal way to run it, but that's... that's Trust me, as, as federal politicians, we understand the challenges of federations, don't we? Federated parties and also yeah. in governments. So, um, and look, there, there has actually been progress coming out of each of those reviews. It's not as though each of those... This is John O'Neill. Rugby has a lot of mouths to feed, and you can have this eternal debate about a centralised model versus a decentralised model. In, in the end, it depends on what you can afford. Um, and, and a lot of work went into uh, a more centralised model to have more direct control over, over your major assets, which are players and coaches. And there'll be people who argue uphill and down dale uh, as to whether there should be a decentralised or centralised model. Um, it, it, but again, the reality check is what can you afford? At the core of this saga was the fact that the Australian Rugby Union was hemorrhaging money. The Senate inquiry exposed some key facts about the business of rugby in Australia. The broadcast deal that Australian Rugby had made as a member of Sanzar for the period 2016 to 2020, was worth $285 million to the union. The cost of a Super Rugby franchise every year was $6 million, and $10 million was used to build community participation. By their own forecast, the ARU expected to see a financial hole of between $13 million and $26 million by quarter four of 2020. So in simple terms, the cutting of a Super Rugby team would save them $18 million over the remaining three years of their broadcast deal with Fox. But aside from the money given to each franchise, there had been unbudgeted funding to keep some of them afloat. This is Bill Pulver when questioned at the Senate inquiry about the loans that the ARU had provided to the Melbourne Rebels. Senator, the numbers you're talking about make up the $28 million of unbudgeted funding that we've talked about um, in the last five years. So of the $28 million, the lion's share of that, correct, was in relation to the Rebels. Um, $8 million of that in the last, since 2015, yes. has been in relation to the force. Yeah, $8,700,000. $8, so of the 28 unfunded, yeah. nearly half of that was actually due directly to um, AA, to Melbourne Rebels. More. More. Yes. Okay. So over half of that twenty-eight yeah. million loss. Eight, eight, yes. Okay. Correct. Now over that same time, uh, from twenty ten to twenty sixteen, the Waratahs have had no loans, according to your records. Um, the Rebels have; they've paid back. Brumbies had didn't pay back; those were written off. Um, and the Rebels had thirteen million written off. And the Force over that time had no loans. Now you had the three point seven million payments as part of the alliance agreement. So it's. That's that which goes into the eight million I'm talking about between 2015 and. So 17. why did you? So why did you? Did the board agree to write off that 13 million dollars worth of loans? Because we did a transaction to sell the entity to Imperium Sports Management. So can you tell us the, the details surrounding surrounding uh, that? The transaction? Yes. No, I can't. And that would be because. It's confidential. 
At the time that it was announced that a team would be cut, the Melbourne Rebels were owned by Imperium Sports Management, and as said by Bill Pulver on the record, and evidenced by ARU documents, the Melbourne Rebels franchise was transferred to Imperium with debts of $13 million that were completely written off. Imperium Sports Management acquired the Melbourne Rebels in 2015, two years before the crisis, and as a company that was under the umbrella of a large investment company with a portfolio in sports and hospitality industries, it was hoped that new management could help turn the club's financial fortunes around in the country's sporting capital. The company was owned by a New Zealand-born businessman called Andrew Cox, and the amount of money that Imperium paid to acquire the Melbourne Rebels? One single Australian dollar. Cox and Imperium had no history of managing rugby clubs, and that, and the manner in which the Rebels were acquired, was raised with ARU Chairman Cameron Klein during the Senate inquiry. So you have no concern whatsoever, as a chair of this board, that not only did you give the Melbourne, you know, the Melbourne Rebels debt-free to um, a business who'd never run a Super Rugby franchise or a big sporting franchise before, so they paid a dollar. They were also provided with millions of dollars of extra grants no other Super Rugby club was getting and that they were spending it on consultancy fees. So they were using that money to pay themselves no, I think, exorbitant fees. Well, I, look, I don't know the, the, you know the ins and outs of what was occurring. Mr Klein, the, you just said you, the, you did due diligence no, on their financials. We did due diligence on the assessment. We looked at their financials. What I'm saying is that the nature of the game was that all teams were struggling and the Super Rugby payments vary from every franchise year to year. Uh, based on a whole series of criteria. So it's not fair and it to suggest that you know certain teams were benefited more than other teams because that varies every year based on a whole series of criteria. Aside from the business arrangements with the franchises, considerable questions at the Senate inquiry were asked around the performance of all teams and how that had been linked to the hardships suffered by Australian rugby. The stark decline in super rugby performances were tabled in a graph form, clearly showing what most people already knew. Australian rugby's professional teams, as a collective, were performing worse with the inclusion of every new franchise. This was Cameron Klein. When Australian rugby had three teams in the Super Rugby competition, we won in excess of 60% of games. So it was the expansion of the domestic uh, teams rather than the international teams which has caused the financial issues? Uh, I think it's a combination of uh, the poor format of the 18-team competition, but if I just go back to the, the expansion from 3 to 4 to 5, saw a step down in performance from 60% of wins to 50 to 40. Uh, and I think you know, it's quite clear that, that Australia doesn't have the playing depth to support um, five teams. During the term that the ARU were deciding which franchise would be axed, Jeff Stook was the only West Australian on the ARU's board of directors. However, he had been forced to recuse himself after the Western Force had initiated a public drive to help fund the team and enabled the public to buy shares in the team worth $1,000. There was legal advice was given that I had to recuse myself from board meetings or when the board discussed Super Rugby on the basis I had a conflict of interest. Now I asked for that uh, legal advice. Unfortunately, it took um, about two and a half months for me to get it, physically see it. 
And that was interesting because the, the rationale for me um, having a conflict of interest was the fact that um, I had contributed $10,000 to the fundraising to Save the Force, which was an, a, a Save the Force, forget the name of it now, and they were, they were selling, sorry? Own the Force. Own the Force. And I, uh, it was $1,000 a share. And I bought 10 shares and my mother-in-law bought two shares for her grandchildren. And um, that was deemed to be um, a conflict of interest. Now how they became aware of that, it's interesting again that um, the ARU at that point in time owned all the assets of the force and they were able to monitor uh, emails and they monitored the CEO's email and found an email from me to him saying, I've just uh, purchased 10 shares, all of SBF fundraising. And that was sufficient to uh, say I had a conflict of interest, but it uh, took uh, some time to get advice to me. However, I did stand down once they requested it based on this legal advice, even though I hadn't seen it at that time. And the legal advice was that I shouldn't be able to um, participate in discussions on uh, Super Rugby. And of course, during the critical juncture, when the ARU was still deliberating as to which team would be cut, another significant actor entered from stage right. I've informed the ARU at chairman's level and I've informed the Minister for Sport that I would stand behind the sport financially. Andrew Twiggy Forrest, the relative of Western Australia's first Premier and a billionaire through ownership in mining interests and cattle stations, had long been a supporter of rugby and the Western Force. At the end of the Force's last game in season 2017, he famously addressed the players on the field, vowing to keep the team alive. I strode out onto the field and assured the Western Force that I would do any, everything in my power to ensure that they not only survive but thrive, and I intend to carry through with that. The inclusion of Andrew Forrest at such a late stage in the process created a major public inconvenience for the ARU. You had a very well-known and generous benefactor mm -hmm. um, who just announced many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of um, funds for various charities mm -hmm. and causes, um, who, as I understand, offered $50 million. So what did you do after that? Did you take that back to Mr Pulvar? Did you take the offer back to the board? Um, who made that final decision that $50 million, as you said, wasn't enough or you weren't interested or it was too late? No, so I'm happy. Well, certainly it was too late um, in some respects. And, and, you know, obviously if that offer had come at any point from really March 2016 uh, up until when it did come, it would have obviously been a quite a different set of affairs. But let me just go through a little bit. Andrew Forrest is a quarter of a friend of mine. I go back a fair way with him. I know, I know him fairly well. I've helped do a biography, a friend of mine's done a biography on him, and I'm, so I know him quite well, and we've dealt with each other, and I like him. This is Peter Fitzsimons, former Wallaby, journalist and author, who we've heard from before in earlier episodes. I think you said, I've got $50 million to save the Western Force. As I said to him, Andrew, good on you, but it's five minutes to midnight. We needed this at half past ten. You know, it was too late by that point. Ultimately, the hammer had to drop. And in the end, it didn't come back to which state had the most players or which franchise had been given the most money 
or the future forecast for what the franchises could earn. It came down to that document we mentioned earlier, the Alliance Agreement, a document of an arrangement between the Western Force and the Australian Rugby Union that was somehow read and considered by individuals from the Melbourne Rebels and the Victorian Rugby Union. Were you aware that the Melbourne Rebels and the VRU had a copy of the Alliance Agreement? Ah. Uh, yes, that's an interesting question. Um, the Alliance Agreement, the first breach of the Alliance Agreement was actually by a Rugby WA director, and we'd be very happy to provide yeah. you the legal letter. It was uh, uh, that, the, uh, the Rugby uh, WA director in breach of the Alliance Agreement mm. was putting that out on public websites, uh, and we wrote specifically to them to indicate they're in breach of the Alliance Agreement. So the Alliance Agreement was made public by Rugby WA. Uh, that agreement was um, at some point given to the Victorian Rugby Union to peruse. Do you know what the purpose or the context of that was? Well, it wasn't given to them. Um, well, sorry. They got access to it. Um, everyone we've, I've spoken to about it denies having provided it to them. But uh, it was left in someone's office where someone was able to go and read it. And uh, the person who was able to read it uh, is a very, very eminent uh, lawyer and he was able to uh, give an opinion on that. So uh, it was less than appropriate, but it happened. And the person who read it uh, has confirmed that to me. He actually physically saw it and read it. And with that, the Alliance Agreement was the vehicle that enabled the ARU to remove the Western Force. The ARU had no such other legal mechanism against any other Australian Super Rugby franchise, including the Melbourne Rebels. A fact the Rebels would have known after reviewing said Alliance Agreement. And from my end, if I'm putting my West Australian cap firmly on in this saga, there was one burning question I had about the motivations of the ARU from the moment that Alliance Agreement was first drawn up. Presumably given your role or your history with Western Australia, do you think that there were forces within Rugby Australia that would not have wanted to make any you know, let it slip to someone like yourself that there were people that were committed to getting rid of the force instead of the rebels? Oh, look, um, I don't think there was that clandestine. No, I don't. Um, I knew, I made it very clear, and I stated it to, to, you know, very openly, that I believe there are preconceived uh, notions from uh, various members of management that the team that should go is the force. Before any evaluations were done, they wanted the force out. And I made that very clear... I made it clear privately and publicly. So, no, there was nothing clandestine about it. It was, it was fairly, fairly open and I was fairly forthright. On the 11th of August, 2017, a press conference was gathered once again in the headquarters of the Australian Rugby Union. It was a feeling of deja vu as the Chairman Cameron Klein and CEO Bill Pulver once more spoke to a press gallery. But this time their words carried far heavier weight. Uh, today I have the regrettable duty of informing you that the ARU board has made the decision to discontinue the Western Force Super Rugby licence, meaning they will no longer participate in Super Rugby from the 2018 season. This was an incredibly tough decision, the one that had to be made for the long-term sustainability of our game. Within the same day, the response from Western Australia was immediate and loud. Wallaby and Western Force captain Matt Hodgson gave what can be only described as one of the most sincere and heartfelt speeches in Australian rugby history, if not 
all of Australia's sporting history. See what it means to the people. You get 12 years serving a state, serving a country, and they take it away from a, a stupid lettering of the law. Um, but we're lucky we've got people here fighting. Um, pity that the AA didn't fight for us. So, um, yeah, annoying, frustrated, um, but the playing group, staff group, um, the, the fans, we're, we're all here together. Um, and that's what um, makes it all worthwhile fighting for each other. This is Tony Howarth, who was chairman of Rugby WA at the time. Well, anger, um, and that's where we, we felt that um, certain representations had been made to us. We'd put, a, put a, um, an agreement in place which we felt was for the development of rugby, not for the removal of rugby in Western Australia. We felt it was a good agreement and it was getting, giving both sides what, what they were after. Um, to then for Australian rugby to turn on us and use that as the weapon um, to remove the force. It, it, we were very angry. We also felt that um, the agreement itself um, was being breached by Australian rugby. That's why we ran a succession of court cases to fight it really, really hard. Unfortunately, like the, you know, legally, um, the judge took a different view. And when, when they did that, we were gutted. We really got it. And for Jeff Stook, the axiom of the force precipitated his resignation as a director on the board of the ARU. I didn't resign because the force was kicked out. I resigned because of the process. Shortly after the decision to axe the force, around 8,000 fans, dressed in blue, gathered at the force's headquarters in Florida, holding banners and with fierce determination about how they'd been done over it seemed to play right into that old suspicion people in Western Australia had had for over a century about those wise men in the East. Front and centre of this gathering was, of course, Andrew Forrest. It just made me feel that there's a group of people who wanted to conduct a charade which would harm thousands and thousands of people. Or What we're seeing here is rugby across Australia purely for a weak financial decision. If they're not good at finance, then hand over to people who are. Australian rugby was divided. The Wallabies match against the Springboks in Perth a month later would see a smaller than usual crowd turn out at NIB Stadium, with many supporters wearing blue and chanting for the force during the game. This is Matt Rowley from Green and Gold Rugby. When we saw the force disappear, I think it cut into all of us because you saw that there were a lot of people and it, that episode showed just how much people deeply love the club and love rugby. How do we you know, grow the game outside of you know, New South Wales and Queensland, and Queensland? It is tough. I guess the question has to be that does it have to result in there being, for example, a super rugby team representing that state to be able to make that happen? It's a really, really tough question about how you develop rugby um, outside of those sort of core states because I think what we've definitely seen is in terms of trying to make like a super rugby franchise for example that's that can work on its own two feet um, once we start to push too far we've just seen that it doesn't work um, it doesn't work in that super rugby competition um, should there be great um, you know club systems that work at a different level I think absolutely and there's absolutely no reason why that can't be built out there's the will there's the fan base there's the players 
It's just what's your goal? You know, is it to set up those super rugby clubs or not? And I think we've already had that historical lesson, so I think it's a case of finding another way. The whole sorry saga wouldn't just see the end of the force in Super Rugby. ARU CEO Bill Pulver would resign immediately after the decision was made. Despite calls for him to do the same, Chairman Cameron Klein would stay on in his role until 2020. And for the ARU, which by 2018 had rebranded itself as Rugby Australia, the strategy was very clear. By cutting the force and saving themselves around $18 million in costs, they just had to wait it out till the next broadcast deal was due in 2021, whereby they'd get another cash boost to keep the game afloat. Many events cancelled worldwide because of the coronavirus pandemic are, of course, sporting events. The women's team all postponed because of the coronavirus. States and territories will be quarantining all arrivals through our airports in uh, hotels. Well, it's now 2021, and as we all know, a lot has happened. Rugby Australia never got that major deal they'd been anticipating in 2020. Super Rugby, as it once was, a competition between clubs from five different rugby nations, would cease to exist by March of 2020. And Rugby Australia would post a loss of $27 million for the 2020 financial year, more than the projected loss from 2017 they'd tried to avoid by cutting the Western Force. However, in Western Australia, an unlikely narrative has played out. Licking their wounds, and with their franchise back in Rugby WA ownership, and backed by the deep pockets of Andrew Twiggy Forrest, the force did what few professional sports teams do when they get culled. They prospered. It's so exciting to finally be able to release the details of global rapid rugby. Just a few hours ago in London, the World Rugby Council provided the final approval, the stamp, to a vision we all had, and I drove a little over 12 months ago. A vision to enhance the wonderful sport of rugby and provide the Asia-Pacific region with a new and dynamic sporting experience. Global Rapid Rugby was considered the breakthrough competition to grow rugby in Asia. With innovative rules and new teams from Malaysia, Hong Kong and Singapore, WA Rugby would also bring in advisors and professionals from rival codes to help give Rugby Union a facelift. Over my 15 years in sport, a few, a few learnings, and that is that um, you've got to really look at how the landscape of entertainment is changing. This is Nick Marvin, who was the CEO for that first year of Global Rapid Rugby. When I was in basketball, um, people used to ask me, who was your number one competitor? And I would say my number one competitor was Netflix. And when I moved to rugby and people said, what's your biggest competition to rugby? And I said, well, the first competitor is Netflix and the next one is Rain. Marvin was part of the leadership team that helped rebrand basketball in Western Australia and take the Perth Wildcats from crowds of a few hundred at a small court to recapturing that 1990s flame and be one of the hottest tickets in town at Perth Arena. So what was wrong with the Wildcats and and what was the answer to it? Um, I arrived as an outsider. I went to a game and I said, 
Okay, there's 2,000 people here watching a game of basketball and I'm not a basketball guy. And I think that was the problem and in fact that was the solution. Um, basketball is effectively a foreign sport here in Australia. You know, and yes, we've had some big uh, years of success thanks to some great, great basketball brands and people like Cal Bruton and James Crawford and Andrew Vlahov, Ricky Grace that built a great following, but that had well and truly passed. Uh, so, so my reaction to that was, what will get me to a game? What is it that is going to be put on that will get me out of my house and get my kids to go to a game? So we said, okay, there's 40 minutes of basketball. So we're going to make the remaining hour and 20 minutes about everything else. We're going to show you a good time. We're going to give you memories. We're going to give you time with your family. And if we can do that, then people will come to this event. What the Force's own standalone competition highlighted with their carnival-like atmospheres and new rule innovations was that the rugby union product in Australia had become stale to a general public that had no shortage of action-packed, engaging and increasingly shorter sporting content for the whole family. If you want to be a sports administrator today, you have got to be responsible for the fan from an hour before they leave their house to when they get home. That is my responsibility. So if we want to get you to a game an hour before the game, we're going to send you a text or an email or a message to say, hey, it's the head coach here. We're going to have a great night tonight. This is who I've got in my starting lineup. We train people in the car park to make sure that they greet you, they smile, they set the agenda for the night ahead. We've got dancers, male and female, in the venue, in the foyer, we've got activities for kids. You're having a good night out every second of the night and every second of the night is pre-programmed. This is Tony Howarth again. I think it's, it's pretty broadly accepted that Super Rugby is probably in its death throes in a way. When, when that occurs, um, it's a bit uncertain, but Certainly, um, you know, there's lots of noises coming out of South Africa about its longer term, its longer term position. Um, the, I think everybody's, certainly in Australia, um, the television rights just aren't there to, to fund it. Um, so there has to be some remaking of the, of the competition for Australia. Um, and I think Andrew's in a pretty good spot to help make that. Um, particularly if at the end of the day Australian rugby finds itself in such dire financial straits that it, that it really needs to come to Andrew for a solution. When COVID-19 halted sport around the world, it gave many countries and games a chance to pause and in some cases reset. However, for Andrew Forrest's global rapid rugby concept, a global pandemic with country lockdowns and travel restrictions was the death knell for this bold new competition. Yet, as was now a trend for the Western Force, as one door shut, another door would open. Rugby returns to the Sydney Cricket Ground and it's the New South Wales Waratahs who welcome the Western Force back to Super Rugby. In the 2021 Super Rugby AU competition, the Western Force finished third out of the five Australian teams, ahead of their expansion rival the Melbourne Rebels and the once were mighty New South Wales Waratahs the Force even managed to notch a win against the Reds, who had gone to win the Super Rugby AU title. And while the Trans-Tasman competition would eerily take Australian rugby fans 
back to the dark days of a few years ago with utter domination by the New Zealand franchises, the force would end up being one of the better performers out of the Australian teams, narrowly losing to the Chiefs and going respectably close against the Crusaders, Blues and the Highlanders. Today, the force have arguably one of the most active and largest squads in Australia and of course, one of rugby's most dedicated core group of fans known as the Sea of Blue. But if you look more closely, there is something unique starting to happen in the West. Since being axed in 2017, the force were able to continue playing between 16 to 22 games a year, inclusive of exhibition matches, global rapid rugby warm-up games, and the now discontinued NRC, which they won in 2019. When the force returned to Super Rugby in 2020, a lot of attention was given to their flashy recruits, like former All Black Richard Kahui and Irish international Rob Carney. However, it ignored the many names, like Fergus Lee Warner, former All Black Jeremy Thrush, Brynard Stander, Ian Pryor, Folletti Kaitui, Henry Stowers, Jack McGregor, Marcel Braki, Henry Taifu, all who had been part of the Western Force squad for two to three years. The Force didn't waste their isolation, but instead continued to build a squad and develop players through its academy. And even in 2021, it's finding ways to bring back more and more of the players from their system, such as Isaac Fine's Lalawasa from the Brumbies, as well as the Perth-raised Rhys-Jan Pasatoa. Having spoken more recently, off the record, to people who have insight into the inner mechanics of the Western Force, I can confirm that initiatives like Global Rapid Rugby and other plans for their high performance are very much part of their strategy. As Force stalwart and current halfback Ian Pryor said when he renewed his contract last year, we're building something special as an organisation. And when you have the backing of the likes of Andrew Forrest, who has gone on record as saying he wants to make the Western Force the best club team in the world, you can't help but feel that they aren't going to die wandering. The tale of the Western Force is an important one when you start to pick apart the body of Australian rugby. The pain of a code divided and of an entire club seeing its future tossed aside still bears scars and mistrust today. But more importantly, it was an episode that revealed just how fragile the rugby union foundations are in Australia. It exposed how lean and underdeveloped our talent stocks are compared to the rest of the world's professional player base. And it pulled back the curtain on the questionable management decisions and long-term strategy that Rugby Australia has if it is to ensure that the game doesn't face further do-or-die crisis moments again. This story is still relevant because Rugby Union still cannot settle on a business model that is sustainable, and it continues to remain in the shadow of the more dominant codes of Aussie rules and rugby league. And, in 2021, while New South Wales, the biggest state in Australia, suffers both on the field and on the balance sheet, and the Rebels and Brumbies face their own challenges to engage local support the Western Force stand aside as the only privately owned and run franchise, which in itself 
should serve as a worthwhile business case to further study. This is John O'Neill. It was instructive for me when I was running football and created the A-League. The, the, the deal with um, Australian Sports Commission, ourselves and the Australian Government, was, was we prohibited state federations, the equivalent of state unions, they were prohibited from owning A-League teams because the history of soccer football was that um, the state federations used to have to bail out the professional teams. So the community game was bailing out the professional game. You know, I'd leave the federated model in place. Uh, you know, New South Wales Rugby Union, ACT, you name it, the territories, but they're responsible for the community game. And, and that's their mandate. And the professional franchises move into private ownership. You know, that's the model. And as Rugby Australia continues on through its new chapter with a light on the hill in the form of an anticipated 2027 Rugby World Cup in Australia, feels as though the Western Force are also continuing on with a new chapter of their own. And this time, it's a chapter they will write themselves. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film, Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host, Matt Durrant. Music from this episode is by Ryan Papahatsis and Brad Vanderlucht from Fade Out Audio and will feature in the upcoming film. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby and follow us on Instagram for pretty pictures and Twitter for banal chatter. Till next time, keep on digging.